Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, about to uh, depart for Roma, Roma, Italia. We've been meaning to go to Rome for years, or to Italy, I should say, for years, and uh, kept getting put off for various reasons, and now finally we are going. So I leave for the old old world in uh, just a couple of hours from now, but before that I thought, hey, I should probably record an episode of Wuthering Heights. It is um, with great, great relief that I tell you that Catherine is dead. God, am I happy about that. You know, we've been waiting for her to die pretty much from the beginning of the book, and now finally she's dead. She's ready to haunt the Moors. She's ready to haunt Wuthering Heights. She's ready to scare our narrator Lockwood. Like, all kinds of good things can finally take place now that she has expired. Somehow, she also gave birth before expiring. None of us understood that she was pregnant. It was brought to my attention. Wait, I'll read the exact quote from where we are to uh, gather that she was with child. Okay, where is that? Where is that information? Okay, so Monica Newman found it. It's in, in chapter 13. Quote, And there was a double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. We cherish the hope that in a little while, Mr. Linton's heart would be gladdened and his land secured from a stranger's gripe by the birth of an heir. Now, I remember that phrase, and it did not occur to me, 
that that meant that she was pregnant, merely that if she did become pregnant, it would be great because then he would have an heir. Because there was double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that she is with child in that moment. And then she says, we cherished the hope that in a little while, Mr. Linton's heart would be gladdened and his land secured from a stranger's gripe by the birth of an heir. So I guess in the context of the time, you're sort of hoping because, you know, things go wrong all, all, all the time and, and, and mothers die in childbirth and children's, uh, you know, children's get strangulated by their little cords there and all kinds of terrible things happen. So you, you, you cherish the hope that the heart would be gladdened. Where I read that as, well, hopefully in a little while she become pregnant. Well, apparently she was pregnant. And then it was never mentioned again for chapter after chapter after chapter. She's just sitting there uh, in a stupor, pregnant. It's terrible. You can't just drop that in there in kind of vague terms and then gloss over the fact. And then when she dies and Nellie goes out to tell Heathcliff she's dead, nobody mentions that there's a child. The child is just sort of like dropped onto the ground, uh, thrown into a bassinet somewhere and forgotten. I understand, like the death of the mother, like that's sad, we need to attend to that. But also, hey, there's a, there's a wailing babe to contend with, maybe we better fetch for the wet nurse, you know? Anyway, it's very frustrating for me that that happened. And then you feel so stupid for not understanding that she was pregnant. And I certainly felt some measure of shame not understanding that. But I guess we just need to pick things up the way I'm going to pick up a fork uh, in a few hours' time in manja on some pasta. So we'll pick things up. Uh, here we are. Deep into chapter 16, Wuthering Heights. So Nellie's been out there with Heathcliff trying to console him, but he can't be consoled. In fact, the last thing we heard her say was he, he was beyond my skill to quiet or console. Mrs. Linton's funeral was appointed to take place on the Friday following her decease, and till then her coffin remained uncovered and strewn with flowers and scented leaves in the great drawing room. I guess they used to do that. If you had a nice house, you just throw a body out there, you know, and just, just lay the body out and just be like, hey, there's a body in your drawing room. Yeah, just that's fine. Just ignore that. Uh, help yourself to a sandwich. We're going to bury her in a few days, but uh, in the meantime, there's some bologna, and I think we have some fresh rye bread. You know, I mean, you know, I guess it's not like that. You come to pay your respects, but still, I find it weird. Maybe it's not weird. Maybe it's weirder to go to a funeral home and have a body there. Maybe it makes more sense to have your body just sort of laid out in the front parlor. You know, have the dog sniffing around the body, nibbling on a finger or something. It was strewn with flowers and scented leaves in the great drawing room. Linton spent his days and nights there, a sleepless guardian, and, a circumstance concealed from all but me, Heathcliff spent his nights, at least, outside, equally a stranger to repose. I held no communication with him. Still, I was conscious of his design to enter if he could, and on the Tuesday a little after dark, when my master, from sheer fatigue, had been compelled to retire a couple of hours, I went and opened one of the windows, 
moved by his perseverance to give him a chance of bestowing on the fading image of his idol one final adieu. I like that there's an adieu. I mean, every time uh, we hear the word obscure, of course, we have to give a little... And this is the first time we've heard adieu, which, of course, I always end each podcast with. And so I feel like there should be some sort of, I don't know, French garland, some French herald, musical herald of the word. Also, they say it's the best word to begin wordle with, adieu, because you get all those vowels just knocked right out of the way. I don't like it. I don't like any of these uh, wordle cheats that people have devised, you know, the best first word and all of that. It's no good. Uh, it's a five-letter word each day. You gotta, you, you, you got plenty of time. Plenty, you got six chances to figure it out. That's plenty of chances. You don't, you don't start with a do. First of all, it's not an English word. And I resent that Wordle accepts it as such. Uh, second of all, it's just a cheat and a scam. And I don't like it. Uh, like a lot of people, I try to think of a new first word every single day. So today, my first word was porch. Now, happily, three of the letters in porch turned out to be in the eventual Wordle word, which was whoop, W-H-O-O-P. Got it on the second guess. Oh, I felt terrific about that. He did not omit to avail himself of the opportunity, cautiously and briefly, too cautiously to betray his presence by the slightest noise. Indeed, I shouldn't have discovered that he had been there, except for the disarrangement of the drapery about the corpse's face, and for observing on the floor a curl of light hair, fastened with a silver thread, which, on examination, I ascertained to have been taken from a locket hung round Catherine's neck. Heathcliff had opened the trinket and cast out its contents, replacing them by a black lock of his own. I twisted the two and enclosed them together. Now that's kind of sweet. You know, Heathcliff, he has a heart, blackened and shriveled and puny and desiccated though it may be. And that heart belongs to Catherine Earnshaw, and Catherine Earnshaw's heart belongs to Heathcliff. That being said, he's such a prick. You know, just because you're capable of loving one does not give you license to be just a total effing prick to everybody else. And the fact of the matter is, with both of these guys, it is Narcissus itself. They both love the other because they see reflected in the other themselves, right? That's the whole problem with the two of them. They are like twins, or they're like, they're, they, you know, they're like uh, conjoined twins separated at birth or something, always striving to reunite with the other. Not because of any great affection, but because they don't feel complete unless they are together. You know, it's just a gross kind of codependency, and we understand he's mourning. And sure, it's sad when your conjoined twin drops dead, but the fact of the matter is, he's not redeemed by this love. He just isn't. And, you know, I understand the, like, dark brooding types, the goths of the world are going to walk around moping and clutching their notebooks tight to their chest and saying, and, and pining for Heathcliff and his dark love. But the fact of the matter is, he's just a prick, you know? And his love for Catherine, you know, he, he, he seeks to own her the same way she seeks to own him. To sub they seek to subsume each other. They are the proverbial snake eating their own tails, 
And we don't say, well, that snake is so loving because it's eating its own tail. You say that snake is um, psychotic and they're both psychopaths. Mr. Earnshaw was, of course, invited to attend the remains of his sister to the grave, and he sent no excuse, but he never came, so that, besides her husband, the mourners were wholly composed of tenants and servants. Isabella was not asked. Why not? Why wouldn't you ask Isabella to come? What's her... I mean, just because... I guess because... What's his face? Edgar is no longer speaking to her, but still, you know... You have sis come over, pay your respects, and then go. The place of Catherine's internment, to the surprise of the villagers, was neither in the chapel, under the carved monument of the Lintons, nor yet by the tombs of her own relations outside. It was dug on a green slope in a corner of the kirkyard, where the wall is so low that heath and bilberry plants have climbed over it from the moor, and peat mold almost buries it. Her husband lies in the same spot now, so he's going to die too, soon too. Good, and well, he's the nicest one, but you know, I'm, you know I, I, as in all books, the more characters die, the better. And they e- have each a simple headstone above, and a plain gray block at their feet to mark the graves. End of chapter sixteen. Um. So yeah, death has come calling. It comes calling for us all, of course. You know, I may uh, sink to my death uh, during a during a international plane flight today, which reminds me that I'm watching this television show. I don't know what network it aired on, or maybe it's even still on. I don't know. It's called Manifest. I feel like it's an NBC show, you know, big network show, about uh, an airplane that takes off in 2013, disappears for five years, and then reappears. And the passengers on the plane, it's their story. They have no knowledge or recollection of where those five years went. To them, it was just a plane ride. They had a little little electrical storm, and then uh, they emerged on the other end, landed, and suddenly it was five years later. But to the people on the ground, five years had gone by, five years of missing relatives, five years of people presumed dead, and they had to pick up their piece, the pieces and continue their lives. And now suddenly, a plane full of people from five years ago shows up. Well, you can imagine the uh, chaos and heartbreak and joy and confusion that it causes. And then to top everything off, there's some kind of psychic phenomena going on with them. Sounds like a pretty good premise for a television show. The kind of thing I would enjoy if it weren't so fucking stupid. It's just badly written. And the characters aren't very good. And, you know, I hate to say it, but the acting is a little soapy. And uh, I've watched about, oh, I don't know, five or six episodes. And every time I'm watching an episode, I'm thinking, I'm not going to watch another episode. This is just garbage. And then I watch another episode. But I'm, I might actually be done. I don't know. Anyway, let's, uh, it, that's neither a recommendation nor meant to dissuade you from checking out Manifest. It's on Netflix. That's where I found it. If you're inclined towards such sci-fi fare. I'm going to take a break, and then we'll pick up again in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Buongiorno, back uh, on Obscura as, uh, as I'm about to depart for Italy. My stomach's already crumbling. I haven't eaten today. And uh, uh, I've got such a long day of flight ahead of me. I'm sort of saving my appetite for the Delta Sky Club. God, I love that Sky Club. Love it. I spend a lot of time in Delta Sky Clubs. You know, they've got some terrific stuff there. Uh, First of all, everything's free. And you've never seen people uh, so desperate to eat as the people who walk into a sky club, myself included, they walk in, they know that food is free before they can even take a breath. They're shoving sliders down their faces. They're getting soups. You know, they're browsing the buffet. Just the idea of free food, nothing excites people more than that. My, again, myself included, the only reason I am still in show business at all is because lunch on a set is free. All day on a set, I'm just thinking, I'm just counting down to lunchtime. Not because I even want the lunch, but because it's free. And, uh, you know, don't let anybody tell you there's no such thing as a free lunch. There certainly is. And it tastes better than all other lunches. Picking up again now, chapter 17. That Friday made the last of our fine days for a month. In the evening, the weather broke, the wind shifted from south to northeast, and brought rain first, and then sleet and snow. Well, sure, because Catherine's dead, and, and so the sky has to, you know, nature has to cooperate and mourn for her, the way nature always does in books of this sort. On the morrow... One could hardly imagine that there had been three weeks of summer. The primroses and crocuses were hidden under wintry drifts. The larks were silent. The young leaves of the early trees, smitten and blackened. And dreary, and chill, and dismal that morrow did creep over. My master kept his room. I took possession of the lonely parlor converting it into a nursery. Okay, so finally we're dealing with the baby. And there I was sitting with the moaning doll of a child laid on my knee, 
rocking it to and fro, and watching, meanwhile, the still-driving flakes build up the uncurtained window, when the door opened, and some person entered out of breath and laughing. My anger was greater than my astonishment for a minute. I suppose it one of the maids, and I cried, Have done! How dare you show your giddiness here! What would Mr. Linton say if he heard you? Excuse me, answered a familiar voice, but I know Edgar is in bed, and I cannot stop myself. With that, the speaker came forward to the fire, panting and holding her hand to her side. Okay, so it's a lady person, and she says, I have run the whole way from Wuthering Heights. She continued after a pause. Except where I've flown, I couldn't count the number of falls I've had. Oh, I'm a- is it? Oh, so it's is it Isabella? Uh, oh, I'm aching all over. Don't be alarmed. There shall be an explanation as soon as I can give it. Only just have the goodness to step out and order the carriage to take me on to Gimmerton and tell a servant to seek up a few clothes in my wardrobe. The intruder was Mrs. Heathcliff. It's okay. I don't know why she's laughing and so happy. Maybe because she's out of Heathcliff's shadow for a minute. Maybe she's left him. She certainly seemed in no laughing predicament. Her hair streamed on her shoulders, dripping with snow and water. She was dressed dressed in the girlish dress she commonly wore, befitting her age more than her position. A low frock with short sleeves and nothing on either head or neck. The frock was of light silk and clung to her with wet, and her feet were protected merely by thin slippers. Add to this a deep cut under one ear, which only the cold prevented from bleeding profusely, a white face scratched and bruised, and a frame hardly able to support itself through fatigue. And you may fancy my first fright was not much allayed when I had leisure to examine her. My dear young lady, I exclaimed, I'll stir nowhere. So she's a sight, isn't she? Just bleeding and cut and bruised like she's just, you know, she's like she's one of those uh, ladies who gets trapped, you know, by a, in a sex dungeon and has to claw her way out, you know, eat the floorboards with her teeth and spit them out one by one and then comes out, blinks in the daylight, delirious, dressed only in her pajamas and has to run through the heather in the field scratching the through the bramble and then arrives at a gas station uh hysterical and says and says i'm free i'm free and and the gas station attendant says what the hell is this well that's what it sounds like is happening with isabella uh so uh, and i've lost my place of course she says, I'll stir nowhere and hear nothing till you've removed every article of your clothes and put on dry things, and certainly you shall not go to Gimmerton tonight, so it is needless to order the carriage. Certainly I shall, she said, walking or riding, yet I've no objection to dress myself decently. And ah, see how it flows down my neck now, the flyer, the fire does make it smart. I guess that means the blood. She insisted on my fulfilling her directions before she would let me touch her, and not till after the coachman had been instructed to get ready and a maid set to pack up some necessary attire did I obtain her consent for binding the wound and helping to change her garments.
Now, Ellen, she said, when my task was finished, and she was seated in an easy chair on the hearth with a cup of tea before her, you sit down opposite me and put poor Catherine's baby away. I don't like to see it. <laughs> just put that baby away. You know, just, there's a trunk over there. Throw it in the trunk and put a pillow on top so we don't hear its cries. I don't like to see the baby. Put it away. Well, where the hell is she going to put it? Well, I mean, I don't understand. Like, they're not really set up to have a baby there. The baby is nothing more than a prop, no more than a cabbage patch doll that they can kind of fling about at their will and whimsy. It's not right. It's not right, I tell you. Hey, Shakespeare, it's not right the way you're treating this baby, Shakespeare. I guess Emily Bronte must have been childless. I think all the Bronte sisters were because you just, you know, when you have a baby... The baby really kind of takes precedence over everything else. I mean, that's just the nature of things. Because it's a helpless, mewling creature, and you have to keep it alive, or you go uh, to the hooskow, you know? You're, just, you're not allowed to just leave babies laying around. But the world would be a much better place if you could. If you could just leave babies willy-nilly, scattered among, you know, the fields and... And wherever you wanted to, you just put a baby down, the way people have with scooters in the big cities these days. You know, they have a scooter, they ride it around, they just throw it down on the sidewalk, they walk away. It would be so much better if we could do that with babies. You have a baby, you know, you play with it for a little while, maybe you give it a bottle or something, and then when you're done, you put it on the sidewalk and hope a stranger comes and picks it up. And if it doesn't, well, say lovey. Uh, I don't like to see it. You mustn't think I care little for Catherine because I behaved so foolishly on entering. I've cried too, bitterly. Yes, more than anyone else has reason to cry. Well, I don't know that anyone else. I mean, you know, let's give credit where credit is due. Let's say Heathcliff has the most reason to cry. Okay? Followed by Edgar. Maybe followed by you. But, but I feel like you're quite a bit ways down the list. We parted unreconciled, you remember and I shan't forgive myself. But for all that, I was not going to sympathize with him, the brute beast. Oh, give me the poker. This is the last thing of his I have about me. She slipped the gold ring from her third finger and threw it on the floor. I'll smash it, she continued, striking it with childish spite, and then I'll burn it. And she took and dropped the misused article among the coals. There, he shall buy another if he gets me back again. He'd be capable of coming to seek me, to tease Edgar. I dare not say, lest that notion should possess his wicked head. So it sounds like she's left him. It sounds like she finally said, enough is enough. I'm out of here. I'm, uh, I'm taking my, uh, my flimsy clothes with me and my ballerina slippers, and I'm running out. And, and that's why she's laughing, because she's free, free, free at last. God Almighty, she's free at last. The last thing she's got is his ring. She takes it off. She throws it in the fire. She says, fuck him. Well, good. Good for you, Isabella. And besides, Edgar has not been kind, has he? And I won't come suing for his assistance, nor will I bring him into more trouble. Necessity compelled me to seek shelter here, though if I had not learned he was out of the way, I'd have halted at the kitchen, washed my face, warmed myself, got you to bring what I wanted, and departed again to anywhere out of reach of my accursed, of that incarnate goblin. Ah, he was in such a fury. If he had caught me, it's a pity Earnshaw is not his match in strength. I wouldn't have run till I'd seen him all but demolished, had Hindley been able to do it. Well, don't talk so fast, miss. 
I interrupted. You'll disorder the handkerchief I have tied around your face. <laughs> so she's tied a little handkerchief around her face, I guess, to you know to prevent the bleeding. They don't have Band-Aids back then. So she just ties a handkerchief around her face. I guess it works. And make the cut bleed again. Drink your tea and take breath and give over laughing. Laughter is sadly out of place under this roof and in your condition. Ah, undeniable truth, she replied. Listen to that child. It maintains a constant wail. Send it out of my hearing for an hour. I shan't stay any longer. I rang the bell and committed it to a servant's care. Uh, okay. And then I inquired what had urged her to escape from Wuthering Heights in such an unlikely plight and where she meant to go as she refused remaining with us. Well, I mean, it, the, the plight isn't that unlikely. She know, I mean, Nellie knows she's abused. Nellie knows she's ignored and ostracized and fed little and given little to do and lives in that dank and dark place. And her husband is a tormentor and a goblin as she describes him. So, uh, if anything, Nellie should be thrilled to see that Isabella has left her husband and come running through the sleet and snow to safety and sanctuary there at Thrushcross Grange. I ought and I wish to remain, answered she, to cheer Edgar and take care of the baby for two things, and because the Grange is my right home. But I tell you, he wouldn't let me. Do you think he could bear to see me grow fat and merry, and could bear to think that we were tranquil and not resolve on poisoning our comfort? Now I have the satisfaction of being sure that he detests me to the point of its annoying him seriously to have me within earshot or eyesight. I notice when I enter his presence, the muscles of his countenance are involuntarily distorted into an expression of hatred, partly arising from his knowledge of the good causes I have to feel that sentiment for him, and partly from original aversion. It is strong enough to make me feel pretty certain that he would not chase me over England, supposing I contrived a clear escape, and therefore I must get quite away. I've recovered from my first desire to be killed by him. I'd rather he'd kill himself. He has extinguished my love effectually, and so I'm at my ease. I can recollect yet how I loved him, and can dimly imagine that I could still be loving him if... No, no, even if he had doted on me, the devilish nature would have revealed its existence somehow. Catherine had an awfully perverted taste to esteem him so dearly, knowing him so well. Monster! Would that he could be blotted out of creation and out of my memory! And here again we find parallels to... Mary Shelley's work that we read last season. His devilish nature would have revealed its existence. He's a monster. Would that he could be blotted out of creation and out of my memory. This too, as we have said, is a book about monsters. But... Even worse monsters, as we have said, than Frankenstein's creation. Because although that creature sought only love, this creature, this Heathcliff, seeks only 
What does he seek? What does he seek, ultimately? Because even when he's joined with Catherine, we can say he seeks the love of Catherine, but even when he's with Catherine, we know ultimately they will destroy each other. They are Sid and Nancy. That's who they are. The only destruction Heathcliff ultimately seeks is his own. Whereas the creature's desires are, are in a sense, the opposite. His desires, um, although he seeks to destroy the world, are ultimately, his ultimate aim is to save himself, to redeem himself. But he can't. And so he seeks to destroy that uh, which punishes him merely for existing. Heathcliff has had every opportunity in the world to find love and the companionship of his fellow man and has turned his nose up at it because he fancies himself besotted with Catherine, which is to say besotted with himself. He is a snake eating his own tail. He is a dog chewing his own foot. And I will leave you with that because, as we know, I have to go to Italia, eat the pizza, and say hi to the Pope. The Pope. He's so nice. So, looking forward to that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll report from Italy or not. Perhaps I'm going to be there for a week. Perhaps I can do an episode from there. I will pack the book with me. We shall see. So, buongiorno to all of you. Arrivederci. We will pick it up again on another celestial episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you... Adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgerin. If you listen and like this show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. <laughs>